The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome everyone. Um, happy Monday. Today is, um, as you know, is the anniversary of our the attack on Pearl Harbor, so it seems quite fitting that we are talking about combat stress today. And our guest is Dr. Heidi Craft, who received her Ph.D. in clinical psychology from the University of California, San Diego School of Medicine in 1996. She joined the Navy during her internship at Duke University Medical Center, serving as both a flight and clinical psychologist. Her active duty assignments included the Naval Safety Center, the Naval Health Research Center, and the Naval Hospital in Jackson, Florida. In 2004, she deployed to Iraq for seven months with a Marine Corps surgical company serving as officer in charge of the combat stress platoon. She's written a wonderful book called Rule Number 2, which is a memoir of that experience. She left active duty in 2005 after nine years in the Navy, and she now serves as the deputy coordinator for the U.S. Navy Combat Stress Control Program. She currently lives in San Diego with her husband, Mike, a formal, former Marine Corps Carrier pilot and her seven-year-old twins, Brian and Megan. Welcome um, to our show, Dr. Kraft, and thank you for your service. You are very welcome, and it's a pleasure to be here. Um, first, ever since I've, uh, I heard you talk in New York, what is a a flight clinical psychologist on a what is a flight clinical psychologist or a flight I, psychologist? That's a good question. Uh, basically, the military has these these doctors we call flight surgeons, and it's a bit of a misnomer. It's an old-fashioned term. People always say, are they doing surgery in the air? Uh, and, of course, they're not. They're, these are general medical officers whose job is focused on caring for aviation personnel. So it's, it's sort of one place that physicians can go right after they've finished internship in, or in their, their jobs to serve the fleet. So there's a physician assigned with every major aviation command in the Navy and Marine Corps. And that person is responsible for that squadron and those people. And so what I was basically is, a, is an adjunct person to those flight surgeons. I was a clinical psychologist, but I entered the Navy in a program where I actually uh, wore flight surgeon wings, went through the six-month course with my physician colleagues, and learned about aviation medicine and aviation psychology, and then had the opportunity to serve the aviation fleet with, with regard to both the psychology of flying and performance uh, grief and other kinds of issues that might affect your ability to fly, um, but also human factors in mishaps and kind of the entire um, realm of how the psyche affects a person's ability to fly or care for aircraft. So in, with that came the wonderful deal that I got to fly. That's part of what flight surgeons do. With ever, whatever unit you're attached to, um, the idea is that you're supposed to fly with them so that they trust you and think of you as one of them. And so it was a wonderful experience. I wouldn't trade it for anything. Um, what kind of aircraft did you fly in? 
Uh, almost everything, actually, in the Navy and Marine Corps inventory. I was in a job with the Navy Safety Center where we went to a variety of units and did these safety surveys, and um, I was on part of a team of pilots and maintainers. And so pretty much everywhere we went, the, the pilot or maintainers that came from that community would call ahead and say, hey, would you take my dock flying? And so I had the opportunity to fly in almost everything we have. Um, the majority of my time was spent in F-18s. Uh, the Hornet mm-hmm. uh, fighter jet, and that was with a Marine Corps squadron here in San Diego that adopted me and uh, helped out their flight surgeon with some things, and they flew me quite a bit. Wow. Um, how did you get interested in joining the Navy? My father's a submarine commander, retired, and so I grew up in a Navy family, and <laughs> interestingly, he tried to convince me from day one that the Navy would be the way to go, that I should follow him to the Naval Academy, which I adamantly opposed and said I was going to UC San Diego. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the opposite of the Naval Academy, I think. Um, and and that was fine with him, but then I started being interested in medicine. Couldn't decide whether I was going to go the physician route or the clinical psych route, but either way, the Navy has a nice way to do that. And so he tried to convince me to let the Navy pay for school and go to the military medical school to do my training, and I Again, said, Dad, I'm not sure what part of this you don't understand. I will not go into the Navy. <laughs> so I put it off for another four years. And then when I was at Duke, I uh, I had been flying as a private pilot and loved flying. And, um, and as I sort of moved through that period of my life, I, I really found myself wanting to serve and follow in his footsteps after all. So I actually joined the Navy during internship, and my dad came out to... Duke, where I was sworn in as a lieutenant, and finished up that internship and started right after that. Well, he must have been very proud. Yeah, I think he kind of chuckled the whole way, but then he was proud, yes. Yeah. (laughs) Everything Um, comes full circle. I I want to talk a little bit about, well, I want to talk a lot, actually, about your book, Rule Number 2, Lessons I Learned in a Combat Hospital. And first of all, um, being a flight surgeon seems to be quite different than working in a mass unit. Mm, yes. How, how do you get from being a flight surgeon to being in the middle of a desert in a mass unit? Well, I was a flight surgeon while we were at peace, of course. Mm-hmm. And um, we still have flight surgeons even now when, when the country's at war. But right. um, but my job, of when I was flying, that was the country was at peace. And so mm-hmm. my units all involved flying with exercises, basically, training, workups. Right. At the In 2002, I got pregnant with my twins and... You, you can't fly in F-18s when you're pregnant. <laughs> um, so at that point, I, I made this decision that my husband and I talked it through, and we sort of decided that uh, I should take orders. I should switch my primary subspecialties, give up flying as the primary thing I was doing, and move to a hospital role and just be a clinical psychologist full-time. It seemed to fit our family's lifestyle a little better with little kids. There wasn't as much of the of the travel that I was having with my squadrons and and moving around. So uh, so we got stationed in Jacksonville, Florida, uh, right after they were born, and I was on staff there at the hospital. So I was no longer flying. I was just a staff psychologist. Mm-hmm. And uh, right after that uh, was when, when the Iraq War started. So my orders had me assigned to a Marine Corps um, fleet support service group, which they don't call them that anymore. They're now Marine Logistics Groups. But basically... They include the medical personnel that will deploy with the Marines. And so um, it, 
we knew. We knew it was coming. It came a little faster than we thought it would because I was pulled out of Florida and I augmented the West Coast uh, Marine Logistics Group that was that was heading out early in 2004. So I, I was uh, the the lone person from Florida that joined that group from San Diego. Um, everything that I've read about um, about being deployed is is the importance of being with a group and a group of people that you knew. Um, what was it like for you to be the one person from Florida with a bunch of people that had already kind of worked together? Yeah, it it, it was difficult. It had its moments, but I'll, it's interesting how quickly people bind together when they're put into a situation that's challenging. Mm-hmm. And and some of those people from my surgical company are still uh, among my most treasured friends. I have a, a small group of them that... I still feel as close to today as, as the day we were in the desert. So the friendships established and formed very quickly and became um, really unbreakable. What kind of preparation um, were you given to to be in combat in terms of from a clinical psychologist's perspective? Did they give you special orientation to what you experienced? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, that we were very new at this at, at the counterinsurgency role uh, when we got there really the bases were just being set up. This was right after the initial push to Baghdad. So things were really in flux, and there was a lot of questions about how our role would evolve and what our duties would actually be. So I have to say that I think the preparation that has been given to people since then has gotten exponentially better. We were not really prepared all that much because because the sort of higher-ups didn't know what we were going to face. I think we really went in um, with completely blank slates as to what would be ahead of us. We didn't know if we would have heavy casualties. We didn't know if we would have any American casualties. We didn't know if we might be providing humanitarian medical care. Um, it was really an unknown at the time. So, so we weren't prepared for what ended up happening with the battle for Fallujah but I'm not sure that we could have been. I don't think that was really anyone's fault. I think now that we know what it was like, we prepare people for the worst, which was still arguably that time. We prepare people for heavy casualties, heavy trauma, and um, dealing with a, a lot of patients, a few, a few providers and a lot of patients. I remember correctly, there were like four uh, behavioral health providers for like 12,000 people. <laughs> right. Myself, my, my partner, who's a psychiatrist, and our two enlisted psychiatric technicians we were it on the base. The infantry marines had their own psychologist, and he traveled with them as they went around. But basically, we were it. The, the other combat stress team was actually in Fallujah proper. So we were between Fallujah and the Syrian border. There were the four of us. And so, yeah, it was. It was uh, we were outnumbered. <laughs> I just can't imagine how overwhelming that must feel. Interestingly, I don't remember feeling overwhelmed. I remember... Mm-hmm being in a mode, you know, that sort of interesting uh, phenomenon that happens that when you're really busy, you get super efficient, mm-hmm. and you have to. And that was the mode we were in. We were very, very busy, but our clinic operated extremely efficiently, and our psych techs became independent providers in and of themselves. They were fantastic. I tell them that every time I see them, how good they were to us. Not only did they deal with all the emergencies, and really my partner and I were only awakened in the middle of the night for a psych emergency on, I can count it on one hand. Uh, the guys took care of everything. 
and had everything waiting for us. Uh, they took care of all the intakes. They had their own therapy panel of patients, of, of sort of um, basic therapy cases that they could handle, and we just provided supervision. So it was a definite team effort, and while we were incredibly busy and we worked every day, and sometimes the days were very long, I don't remember feeling overwhelmed. I just remember thinking that I had to put blinders on and push forward. Um, one of the, I think, defining moments in uh, in movies making is um, the movie Patton, when um, General Patton goes into the MASH unit, and there's a young man who's definitely traumatized by combat, and basically he slaps him across the face and calls him a coward. And... Um, and I can remember um, people coming back from Vietnam and not wanting to even talk about being in combat. So it seems like there's we have this kind of uh, double standard when it comes to thinking about folks who have experienced um, trauma in combat. And we're going to be taking a break, and when we come back, um, I'd like you to respond to that. Sure. listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Can you imagine a technology that takes human consciousness to the next level? One that reveals a new understanding of what is valuable and possible in the abundant support of life? The truth is, we already have that technology. We simply need to awaken to it and become the value it creates. For more about this, please tune in to Awakening Value, Shamanic Technologies of Consciousness and Success with host Marty Spiegelman. Awakening Value is live every Thursday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family sense of recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Queenie's Happy Hour is the place for fun every Monday night after work. Pull up a bar stool and let your favorite bartender mix up some life, laughter, and learning. Queenie, also known as Nancy Wagierski, is a certified facilitator of the Law of Attraction and is here to start your week with a smile and education about making the Law of Attraction work for you. Pour yourself an after-work martini and join us every Monday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific for Queenie's Happy Hour on the Voice America Business channel ready to lift your spirit join karen Tatanich every week for spirit connections karen will share with you the power of energy work it can get you through the good times and the tough times karen will bring together stories of hope and good news based on her work with all aspects of energy there are people and companies out there that are bringing joy to our planet you'll learn about the power of spirit at home at work and at play Spirit Connections is broadcast live Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on 7th Wave Network. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. 
You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Today our guest is Dr. Heidi Squire-Craft, and we're talking about combat stress. Um, Dr. Craft has written a great book called Rule Number 2, Lessons I Learned in a Combat Hospital, and it's published. Um, how can people get a hold of the book, Heidi? It's still available in many bookstores. I would say the sure thing is Amazon, because it depends bookstore to bookstore whether it's in stock. But uh, it's it's definitely there on Amazon. <laughs> And it's important to know, if you do buy um, Heidi's book, 10% of the profits goes to the Injured Marine Semper Fi Fund. Um, so uh, go out and buy her book, and it's a great read, and it'll help other people in addition to enjoying a, a good book. Um, before we went to um, break, I was talking about the difference between how um, combat stress was perceived, like from the movie Patton and that time to, to current times. Right. I think that the one thing we know for sure is that it is get slowly, slowly getting better. <laughs> I tell any of my audiences that understand what I'm talking about, it's like turning an aircraft carrier around. That's a Navy analogy for something that goes really slowly. <laughs> um, it's an incredible amount of stigma. That, that movie and that scene uh, with General Patton, first of all, it breaks my heart every time I think about it, but... Um, Many people have told me from, from prior generations of combat vets, they've told me it, it actually really did feel like that to them, that there was no tolerance for anything other than emotional perfection. So I, when I see that the VA is reporting more people coming forward and being diagnosed with something like PTSD or depression as a result of combat, I think that's a victory. I think that means that we are slowly evolving into a place where it is okay to have wounds that you can't see. Mm -hmm. We're not there yet. There's still an awful long way to go. But we're slowly, slowly making progress. And that's due to a very concentrated effort on the part of leadership. Well, and I think that, um, you know, having been uh, alive and well during the Vietnam era and, and seeing people come home from that forever changed. And, you know, they certainly weren't the same people that left. And I grew up um, outside of Canandaigua, New York, where there was a huge VA hospital, and there would be, um, you know, patients on the street, and they were shell-shocked. You know, and I can remember growing up seeing, you know, these guys hanging out on the street and not understanding and just being afraid. You know, as, as a small child, just being afraid, and um, and just the, the price that um, people pay to serve their country is enormous. You know, um, I'm wondering from being in in Iraq, um, what were the living conditions like, and does that contribute to the stress you feel? Oh, sure, of course. I, I think you always have to take into account kind of the chronic wear and tear of being in um, austere environments and um, extreme weather conditions, which it is there, that's for sure, um, in addition to the high operational tempo that was going on, it still goes on in Afghanistan for sure. Thankfully, Iraq has started to slow down, but 
we were, uh, we, like I said, we were extremely busy, and certainly the Marines that were out on patrols and trying to stabilize an area that was, uh, Western Iraq was a bad area in 2004. There were, it was a lot of, lot of hostilities and a lot of un- instability. So everyone had um, very intense jobs, and, and it was, it made for a lot of additional stress in addition to what might happen in combat. Our living conditions were interesting. We, we were actually, uh, the base that we that we functioned on was an old Iraqi Air Force base, and um, when that base was taken in the invasion, uh, it, or when the folks abandoned it, um, the barracks were actually left intact. So we lived in these concrete buildings that the Iraqi Air Force had used to live in. <laughs> so it was really strange. Um, I actually have pictures of some of the graffiti written in Arabic that were on the various walls, and I still need to have somebody tell me what they say. But it was it was really, sometimes it was great because the buildings were in much better shape than many of our colleagues that were living in tents. Um, the only problem was that the, the electricity to the base was not very good back then, and the grid was really unstable, and so it would go out a lot whenever there was any kind of indirect fire. So there was no moving air. So these were these really thick concrete barracks that actually functioned as bunkers, which was also good. When when we took rocket and mortar attacks, we actually heard about a couple of the rockets bouncing off the top of these barracks. So they actually, <laughs> we were living in bunkers really effectively, which was you know good for safety. Unfortunately, they got really, really, really hot at night when the, there was no moving air. And they didn't have air conditioning per se, but they had like water coolers that basically moved water through and then blew them out. But when that when the air the electricity was out, it was sort of like being in a in an oven. <laughs> so, it made for a lot of really sleepless nights in the heat of the summer. Um, we also functioned in their hospital. We we actually saw patients and did surgery and we had wards and the whole uh, nurses stations, the whole things were set up in the actual hospital that was used by the Iraqi Air Force. So, that was sort of odd too. Um, again, a good structure. So we were thankful for the small blessings. Um, I know one of the things that you talked about in the in your um, book about uh, one of the coping strategies that you had is that somebody had the full season of The Sopranos. Yep. Mm-hmm. And you got <laughs> to, I, and that became group. like a ritual. <laughs> it did it? We a couple one. I think one of us had brought um, one of the guys had brought like season one with him on DVD, and. So then we all just decided we would ask our loved ones to send us various seasons. And at that point, there were five seasons. The fifth season, which was at that time the final season, was going on while we were there. So my partner's wife taped them on DVD as they were happening. And then meanwhile, we had the other four seasons sent to us. And we sat down with the calendar, and we decided that we would watch one episode every Sunday and every Tuesday, <laughs> and that we were going to make the five seasons last for the whole seven and a half months. And uh, and we did that. We stuck to it. <laughs> as much as we wanted to keep watching on a given night, we, we had to have that to look forward to. So we, we stuck to it. Um, I, one of the other things that you talked about in the book was um, you got to um, go to another area to work for a while. I believe, and you got to go in a convoy? Yes, I, I'm not, it's an interesting way that you're saying that, got to go. I, I actually <laughs> actually would have preferred to go any other way than in a convoy in April of 2004. Um, it was an experience, though, and I now looking back, I wouldn't trade it, because now I have an understanding of how scary that can be, to be in a convoy in the middle of the night, 
driving through towns that are very hostile toward you at at a very hot time during a war. So um, it was a it was a long night and a and a scary time for a doc that didn't know what she was doing. I I just put all my trust in my marine driver and the marines that were around me. And um, do you think that your reaction was unlike what other people would experience? The people that are doing it day in and day out. Well, I think it's many of them just feel comfortable because it's their job. You know, the, the vast majority of these guys that that were doing this are are professional warriors. Mm-hmm. They're they're Marines, and so they they're very comfortable with their weapons. They're very comfortable with the tactics of doing a convoy, of of the security of a convoy, of what happens if something happens to the convoy. Um, and I just didn't I didn't feel comfortable in that world. I had never spent any time there before. And I, I, I felt uncomfortable enough with my 9mm pistol. I was really, really, uh, it made me very uncomfortable to have a round in the chamber <laughs> while I was driving. Because I just kept thinking I was going to, you know, make a stupid mistake and, like, shoot someone in the leg or something horrible. You know, one of my, one of my guys. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I, I just, I really didn't trust myself. I'm, you know, I'm a doc. I don't, I don't carry a gun. And so, um, it was a, we, of course, we did carry guns the whole seven and a half months, but normally there weren't, we weren't in what they call condition one, which is around in the chamber. You're ready to fire, mm-hmm. and when you're on a convoy, that's that's how everybody has to be. So it was uncomfortable for me at best. So um, to talk a little bit about combat stress, um, you just mentioned that these are professional warriors, and that they're trained to do a job. So um, what is that like to come home where you come back to a society where you don't have to do those things? Right. I think it's really difficult for these guys. I think that that's one of the things, and this is sort of, again, on in addition to some of the very traumatic things that can happen in combat. Combat's always been bad. Bad things have always happened when we've gone to war, and it probably always will be. I, I can't foresee a time when that will change. So there are these acute and, and horrible experiences that people bring back from, from combat, but they also have some of the things we were talking about, the austere environments, the extreme weather, the high, always-on-the-go type of mentality. But I think the transition is made more complicated by the fact that for Marines, for instance, which is who I normally spend time with, they actually feel that their jobs are very, very simple. In They, they know exactly what it is that they are supposed to do day-to-day in a combat zone. They have been trained well for it. They feel competent to do it. They know exactly what their role is. They're not questioned. Their role is not questioned. They know how to follow orders, how to give orders, where they stand. It's, it's this real simplicity in their minds. Everything that they've ever trained for makes sense in combat. And so coming back to then a life where there are multiple other demands and multiple other um, complicating factors that, that enter day-to-day. A lot of times our, our jobs in the real world include a lot of distractions, collateral duties and other kind of bureaucratic things that get in the way. And this isn't just the military. This is everybody. When you're in your mode, when you're doing your job, and there's nobody questioning anything because the job is so clear, the mission is so clear, you have your role, you know what it is, there's a sense of, there's a sense of um, comfort in that. And so there's a real angst or kind of an anxiety that comes with losing that. I, I know. I felt it myself. Even as a, as a health care provider, it was the same thing. Our jobs were so simple. 
We took care of our Marines and our sailors. That's all we had to do. And our people in the hospital. I, I watched out for my two, my two psych techs and my, and my partner. But that was it. It was sort of, I, I didn't have other external distractions to keep me from knowing exactly what my job was. And I think a lot of my patients try to express that. And we'll be right back. If you have any questions for Dr. Kraft, please give us a call. And we'll be right back after the station break. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tung has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. Have we got a high-energy, all-access sports show for you. It's Outside the Huddle, starring Lemont Williams with co-host Jacob Greer. Each week, join Lemont and Jacob as they take callers, discuss the week's top stories in the world of sports, and sit down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business. Outside the Huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific for Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel. This is an important programming note from the Voice America Women's Channel. The Catherine Zox Show is moving. Our new address is Voice America, and we will be heard on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, starting Wednesday, November 19th. All of the archives will still be available through Catherine's Boombox Player. Remember, tune in to the Catherine Zox Show on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, beginning on Wednesday, November 19th, on Voice America's flagship Voice America Channel. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. And welcome back, everyone. Today, our guest is Dr. Heidi Squire-Craft, and we're talking about combat stress. If you have any questions for us, please give us a call. Um, Heidi, when we talk about combat stress, there's the stress that the um, obviously the people, the infantry people are 
are experiencing, but what about the healthcare providers? Because you talk about compassion fatigue, and what is that like? Well, I think that it's what we've started to realize now is that our medical forces, while not kicking down doors, certainly, and not getting in firefights for the most part, um, are certainly exposed to some of the same vulnerabilities as their warrior patients. For instance, indirect fire, some of the other things we've been talking about. But I think the thing that we forget is that what they do all day, every day, is trauma. So whether they're surgeons or OR techs or ward nurses or um, any other type of medical specialty where they're dealing with people who have been injured, that's, that's their job is trauma. And, and while that is their job in the States as well, just the pure numbers and the pure um, uh, intensity with which those wounds come in the door is different. Also, their resources are limited, and so much of what they could do in the States, they're not able to do in the field, and that's frustrating and helpless. And then when you talk specifically about mental health providers, they are exposed to the traumas of their patients all day. This is what their patients bring to them, and as they should. So they are then hearing about trauma for the majority of their days, one one way or the other. And so I think we just have to realize that when we talk about compassion fatigue, this is a term that's been around for a while, and it just it means the toll that it takes on the caregiver to um, to to sort of absorb the trauma of that person's patient, and and while medical providers try their best to, of course, keep themselves insulated from that, there comes a point at which, especially when there's so much of it, that it's difficult to do, and it's it's difficult to keep yourself shielded. And I think that that affects us all, and it probably the stresses of combat break down our ability to keep ourselves from having that effect. And there's really nowhere to go to get away from it. Exactly. Exactly. It's not like being stateside where you can get off base and go see something totally different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your shift ends most of the time. I mean, some people are on call all the time, I suppose, but right. for many people, you have a shift that actually comes to an end, and, and you get to go home and hopefully be able to decompress what you've been through and, and activate your self-care plan um, and, and do your best to be ready for the next day. A little, little tougher when sleep is so odd. Sleep, I, sometimes I think back and I'm not actually sure I ever slept in seven and a half months. I pretended to, but I, <laughs> I don't know if I really did. I don't know if I ever reached that sort of delta restorative sleep. I, I don't know if any of us did. I'm not sure how we could. Um, I wondered if you could share with our audience a few of the... Um stories that, that you had in the book. One was about uh, the Irishman and the light bulb. Mm. <laughs> yes, uh, that, that story was told from the point of view of a nurse when I went to this other base, which was right near Fallujah uh, during the battle for Fallujah. The surgical company that was on site there had, had really been overwhelmed with casualties, and one of the nurses who had been working for several days straight came into our tent and uh, told me the story of a, uh, a Marine who was a triple amputee. Now, and also keep in mind, Mary, all the patients in my books, identities and injury patterns and, and uh, everything was changed. So mm-hmm. when I talk about this man, his injuries didn't look the way I described them, but I'll, I'll go on the way he's described in the book. So a triple amputee, so two legs and an arm uh, had been lost, and he was obviously in very critical condition, awaiting medevac. And she talked about running by him, to get some supplies, and they had all been working for two days straight. They were exhausted. 
and he he stopped her and said, "Hey, ma'am, I have a question." And she stopped and said, "Oh no, do you need more morphine? Why did I forget about you?" She said she felt horrible. And he asked her how many Irishmen it takes to change a light bulb, and she said she just she couldn't believe what she was hearing. And he he started telling jokes, and he told her that it was far too serious in there, and that everybody needed to lighten up. And for one half, uh, thirty minutes, a half an hour before his helicopter came to get him, he told jokes in the operating suite and had all the medical people laughing until tears were running down their faces. And when he finally left and the casualties had sort of ceased, they all just felt this enormous sense of um, of collapse almost. She said everybody sort of started crying and fell to their knees as they watched him fly away and hadn't realized at that time that he had really saved them. Really remarkable mm-hmm. young man. Um, so how many Irishmen does it take to change a little <laughs> <laughs> Well, he, he says 21. One to hold the light bulb and the other 20 to drink till the room starts spinning. <laughs> good joke. Yeah, that is a good joke. Um, another far more um, intense uh, story in your book is about um, Corporal Jason Dunham, who eventually went on to win the Congressional Medal of Honor, didn't he? He did, yeah. Um, could you share with us that story? Sure. It's a it's a story that I think I continue to tell because it's a it's a story of such symbolism of this circle of healing that's starting to take place as people tell their stories. Corporal Dunham was was grievously injured. He came through our doors with a very serious head injury. And unfortunately, he also came through our doors with 14 other casualties. And one of the truths of military medicine in the combat zone is that there's a triage uh, that goes on where the docs have to take into account their capability and what their limits are. In our case, we had two operating rooms and two surgeons, and so we knew what our limits would be. Uh, We were overwhelmed with 14. And so triage has to take into account whether you can save a person and whether the time needs to go to a person who can be saved. In his case, he didn't have any meaningful brain activity when he was tested, and so he was triaged expectant, which means that we would be giving him fluids and pain medication and support while he died. And... During that mass casualty, I I found myself in the expectant room, mostly to check in on the people who were checking in on him, but they invited me to join them and to sit with them a little while, and and so I did, sat on the floor and held his hand, and we were all talking to him and just trying to provide some support, and he started squeezing my hand, and of course I convinced myself at first that it was a reflex that didn't mean anything, and after he had done it a few more times, I I was out of my comfort zone on that, and I I got right in his ear and told him that if he could hear me, he needed to squeeze now. And uh, he squeezed my hand so hard and pulled so hard that he sort of pulled me forward onto his shoulder. So at that moment, we, uh, we alerted everybody, and he was medevaced out of there immediately and got to Baghdad where he had some surgery to reduce the swelling in his brain and um, went on to Germany, had more surgery, and made it all the way home, actually, to Bethesda, alive, uh, where his parents were waiting before he finally died of his wounds. And we we followed his progress as best we could. We didn't have very much in the way of tracking back then, but everybody was very uh, connected to 
him and wanting to know what happened to him because it, it was literally like he came back from the dead. He was His status really changed, and it was really something to be part of that, um, especially from such a personal perspective as I had. So um, the part about the story where it gets interesting, though, is that he actually sustained those wounds by throwing himself on a grenade to save the men that were with him. And the reporter who was with his unit uh, came through our hospital on his way home and came by to meet us. He was going to be writing a book about Jason Dunham's life and told us the story. We hadn't realized that's how his wounds had been had been sustained. And so he came through and talked to all of us and talked to me and heard my story, and, and he thought that was very interesting. He hadn't known that that's what happened in the hospital. So about uh, two months later, I guess, I got an email from Jason Dunham's mother who told me that the reporter had shared my version of the story with her. And she shared that the only thing that she cared about, really, as his mother, was that he wasn't alone or afraid. And so hearing that we were there and we were holding his hand and talking to him, that that had been what she really needed to hear most of all. And uh, she and I have been very good friends ever since. Actually, I consider her a dear friend. And he did receive the Medal of Honor in January of 2007, and his parents invited me to be with them at the White House. And then just a couple of months ago now, the Navy named its newest destroyer after him, the USS Jason Dunham, and I was invited to be with them again when they christened the ship. So it's turned into an amazing circle, I think, of, of healing for all of us for the Marines who were with him, for me, for them, for his family, his little brothers and sisters. and Because the story keeps being told, and we keep evolving, I think, our, our parts of the story and what we mean to each other, and uh, it's been a real gift. I realize as a medical provider, I'm certainly not the only person that sat with someone critically wounded in a combat zone, um, but the, the extreme circumstances in all of this certainly make it possible that I may be one of the only ones that was lucky enough to then go on to develop a relationship with that person's family. So I, I know I'm very blessed. And what an incredible story of, of selflessness. You know? um, what was it like for you when you came home? It was um, difficult at best. I think is the best way to describe it. I was distant and I felt this faraway sadness that I couldn't put my hands on. I tried very hard to reconnect with my children who had just turned two when I got home. And my husband, who's a Marine and who understood a lot, but um, but with whom I, I just had trouble making him understand. Um, and we'll be right back to hear more about um, how you transitioned home and what you're doing now after this next commercial. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. 
Are you feeling overwhelmed? Do you lack energy and enthusiasm? Do you really want to change your thoughts and feelings? Can you really stay sane when your life isn't? Of course you can. Just by listening to Stay Sane Now each week with Claudine Strzok and co-host Wesley Stoller. You'll have fun and learn how to make each new day the best day of your life. Every show is designed to energize and get you started off on the next week. Stay Sane Now is broadcast live Thursdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific on 7th Wave Network. Two views, different topics, questions, answers, news, and advice. You'll want to check out Ecoman and the Skeptic live from Philadelphia University. Every week, join hosts Rob Fleming and Chris Pastor as they tackle a different topic on sustainability. You'll hear all sides of the issue supported by guests who provide valuable insights. Get ready to be engaged, educated, and entertained when you tune into Ecoman and the Skeptic. Broadcast live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk network Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Are you destined to be an everyday change agent in your organization, your relationships, your community? Learn how to become one when you tune in to The Change Agent on the Voice America Variety Channel. Justin A. Flunder, the chief change agent leader of the Flundonian Group, will help you examine every aspect of your personal and professional life. By observing your own thoughts, words, and actions, you will become the everyday leader that you are meant to be. The Change Agent airs live Thursdays at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Have we got a high-energy, all-access sports show for you. It's Outside the Huddle, starring Lemont Williams with co-host Jacob Greer. Each week, join Lemont and Jacob as they take callers, discuss the week's top stories in the world of sports, and sit down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business. Outside the Huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific for Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Um, Our guest today is Dr. Heidi Kraft who has written a book called Rule Number 2, Lessons Learned in a Combat Hospital, which you can get at Amazon.com, and 10% of the 
proceeds go to the Injured Marine Semper Fi Fund, so go out and buy the book. Um, before we went to break, in the middle of a very important sentence, you were telling us about how difficult your transition was back home, and I'd like you to finish. Sure. It, I was just saying that I felt sort of all wrong, and many people say this, that they can't really put their finger on what it is that's wrong, but they don't feel like themselves. That's just true. I think we all change in situations like that and going through experiences like that. I was a very unempathic psychologist. <laughs> I was I was mean to my patients. I didn't have any patience for anything other than life and death kind of problems. And so I was I think back now and I hope I haven't done more harm than good with some of the folks that saw me right when I got home. But I was with a group of people who hadn't deployed. I went back to Florida, left my my people from San Diego. And I was I was surrounded by people who didn't understand. And that was really, really tough to be by myself back home. Um, my husband was a Marine, uh, but he hadn't he hadn't had gotten out right before the war started. So we sort of had our own um, challenges there because I think that as a Marine, he felt like it should have been him that went and not me. So he sort of struggled with how to reconcile that as well. So I struggled for about seven or eight months um, wondering what was wrong with me, uh, before finally um, someone convinced me to start writing. And we know that, of course, this is a, a very established therapeutic technique for helping people move through traumatic events. But uh, I think Dr. Heal Thyself is one of those that we use in jest, but it's so true that we often don't think about ourselves and how we can best take care of ourselves, and I certainly didn't do that. Once I started writing, I slowly, slowly started feeling better. Every chapter I wrote... Um, helped me emerge again, and I think that um, the most the most important part for me, I think, was moving some of these thoughts and feelings out of my heart and onto a piece of paper uh, where they made sense. So it was therapy. It was never intended to be published, but uh, Deb Dunham asked me to try to publish it for her, and I can't say no to her. So I, I tell her all the time that it's her fault. <laughs> Here we are. <laughs> but it was important to write regardless. And I'm very, very pleased with the way everything turned out. What is rule number two? Mm. Well, for those of you that are MASH fans, uh, one of my very favorite MASH episodes takes place in uh, season one where Colonel Blake, Henry, uh, comes to try to con- console Hawkeye after Hawkeye loses a friend on the table. And he says to Hawkeye, I only, know, I only know what they taught us in commanding officer school, and that is that there's two rules of war. Rule number one is that young men die, and rule number two is that doctors can't change rule number one. That's pretty powerful. Yeah, it's a, it was a wonderful episode. Yeah. It didn't seem like there was any other title for the book. <laughs> um, just one other uh um, person stands out in your book to me the the young uh, marine that came in with kind of that far away look who kept his gun loaded while you were talking to him. Do you remember him? Had the M1 pointed at you? Oh, this, uh, the guy that was psychotic. Yes. Yeah. He he. I think he was probably um, suffering a. Uh, he was having a psychotic break. He's probably schizophrenic. I'm actually not sure what ended up happening to him. Um, but you know they're very young, so it's it is in fact the the appropriate time to be suffering suffering a first break. Um, 
Yeah, and it was it was an interesting moment as a provider because certainly we learn how to deal with these things if someone is is starting to be psychotic and the best way to try to de-escalate situations if if someone gets irritated or agitated. Um, but it, it had never occurred to me that I might be trying to to move into one of these situations with um, a loaded rifle pointing at me. <laughs> and that's, you know, everyone carries weapons, of course, and we carry ammunition, and that's, that's the way it is out there. And so I could never ask a patient to come into a mental health clinic and check his weapon at the door that no one would come. They wouldn't come. So uh, it's, it was important that all my patients had their weapons with them. It was just that was one day when um, that led to a significant challenge, and I, I had to do the obvious thing, which is when he pointed his rifle at me and said he wasn't coming into the hospital, I had to say, uh, okay, go ahead, see ya, <laughs> and let him go. Which Smart woman. You know, well, right, I mean, what, there was no other choice. And then we just had to go, you know, get a hold of the unit and have them track him down and find him for us, and he, they did. And he was medevaced, as is appropriate, and hopefully has was treated back in the States. I'm sure he was, because the hospital was waiting for him. But... uh yeah, it was a moment of reckoning for me, I think. Kind of just, uh, it was up against, oh, well, this, this is it. This is the, this is the catch-22 of what we're trying to do. Um, and it, it was the only time it happened. Um, because it's very, very rare, of course, to have that kind of, that kind of, uh, experience. But it was, <laughs> it was a moment I'll, I won't forget. What are you doing now? And I know you've got, um, you, you've left the Navy. Mm-hmm. I have, yes. I'm, I, uh, I work, I, I still see some active duty um, and veteran combat trauma patients, although the amount of public speaking I've been asked to do lately has, has uh, interfered with my clinic time, so I'm really only able to be in clinic one day a week. Um, but at the moment, it still seems like this is the place for me to be, is uh, doing public speaking if I'm asked, because there's such a push to try to get some awareness about combat trauma, combat stress injuries, and how we as a community, as a nation, can understand a little better and give people permission to to experience these injuries and to get the treatment that will help them be back to themselves again. Um, where can people get in touch with you if they would like you to come and speak or they want to uh, talk to you or whatever? Oh, that's a good question. The book has a website. It's rulenumber2.com, and there is a button there that says contact the author, and that comes straight to an email address. So that's one way. The other way is the Hachette Book Group, uh, which is my publisher, Little Brown. Uh, Hachette Book Group has a speaker's bureau as well, which I'm part of. So that's the other way is to go through them. So either one of those works great. And um, last but not least, what do families experience combat stress? Oh, most definitely, absolutely. They're, they experience sometimes very similar traumas because of, again, that kind of caregiver stress that I was talking about, the vicarious mm-hmm. trauma. So many times, even if, even if they weren't, don't have any experience with anything like it, being around someone who's suffering um, from some of these experiences can actually feel almost, the symptoms can look almost the same. It's almost as if the person experienced the trauma, him or herself. But certainly there's also the effects of, that person's personality often is changed when he or she's struggling from these symptoms, these PTSD-related symptoms or depression or substance abuse, often many, many times those three things together. And there's a lot of anger. There's a lot of numbness and isolation and disconnectedness. And 
symptoms that really make it tough to stay connected with a family. And so the families are many times um, a major concern when people are experiencing these symptoms. Well, on this um, all-important day, it's good to remember our veterans, and thank you for your service, and thank you for being on our show today. And if anyone's out there listening who hasn't heard, um, Dr. Kraft's written a book called Rule Number Two, Lessons I've Learned in a Combat Hospital. It's a good read, and 10% of the profit goes to the Injured Marine Semper Fi Fund. So thank you, Heidi, for your service, and have a great day. You're very welcome. Thank you, Mary. And hopefully listeners will... See you all next week, and have a great week. We appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion, one hour at a time. We'll see you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.